This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this final installment of the Healdsburg Wine and Food Experience, live from the Healdsburg Hotel, I have as my guest, Justin Seidenfeld, the Senior Vice President of Winemaking and Wine Growing for Rodney Strong Vineyards, the iconic Sonoma County winery founded in 1959 by namesake Rodney Strong. Justin's winemaking career began in Sebastopol, California, where he was an intern at Iron Horse Winery in 2005. He quickly rose from cellar hand to taking on winemaking responsibilities, which in 2006 led him to the iconic Robert Mondavi Winery in Napa Valley. As a harvest enologist at Mondavi, Seidenfeld gained a comprehensive understanding of quality land and viticulture. He took that experience as he supervised the winemaking at Estancia, Clos de Bois, Simi, and others within the Constellation portfolio. Justin is passionate about creating memories associated with the wines he makes, saying, quote, People recalling the occasions that wine makes better and memorable is the reason I make wine. Hearing about how and when someone enjoyed a wine I made really inspires me. Justin graduated from the University of California, Davis in 2006 with a BS in viticulture and enology. He lives in Santa Rosa with his wife, Dina, and daughters, Madison, Leela, and Reagan. Please drink in this episode with Justin Seidenfeld. Justin, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's such a pleasure to have you here in the beautiful Hotel Healdsburg for the inaugural Healdsburg Wine and Food Experience. So here we are. You're obviously part of the wine experience, being the Senior Vice President of Winemaking and Wine Growing at the iconic Rodney Strong Vineyards. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. So I don't know a lot about you. We just met. But the one thing that kind of came up was that you were in Denver, and you had evidently this aha moment where you fell in love with wine and decided that at some point this was going to be a career for you? Absolutely, yeah. So my family um, owned a marketing company that was focused on the restaurant and hotel industry. And so one of our close friends owned an amazing restaurant in downtown Denver called The Broker, which was in in a bank vault. And so what most people don't realize is that bank vaults have sub-vaults below the main vault. And so the owner, a guy named Ed Novak, built this incredible wine cellar in the sub vault, filled with everything from 61 Bordeaux to First Gross to DRC and Dom Perignon and Salon and Silver Oak and you name it, he had it. And working there for, from the time I was 14 till um, I left for UC Davis, the number one impression I got when people came in and they had great food, it was the wine that they chose made a truly impactful impression on their on their dinner, memories, and eventually their lives. And I just fell in love with that concept and wanted to make a difference in people's lives in a positive way. And so I went down the path of winemaking. So you didn't want to become a politician? I did not want to be a politician, no. I wanted to get my hands dirty in the vineyards. I wanted to enjoy the science and, and art of the winemaking. And I wanted to see the impact of what I do on people's daily lives. So was there a moment, other than this aha moment of I wanted to do this for a living because I think you bring pleasure into people's lives this way, was there an iconic aha moment with a wine in particular? Did you have a wine that went... Uh, Not a particular wine while at um, 
while working at the restaurant, uh, I did have an aha moment with a wine that made me become the winemaker I am today. Uh, it's, uh, it was a wine called Macetto, uh, which is an Italian Super Tuscan that's 100% Merlot. And I got the privilege to drink that wine in a tasting with the two winemakers who made it, Michel Roulon and Gustavo Gonzalez, as well as Jean Viev, who was the, my boss at Robert Mondavi, and then two MWs, uh, uh, Mark DeVere and, and uh, Peter, uh, or Peter Beals. The way the wine spoke to me kind of drowned out all of those amazing people in the room. And I just hyper-focused on it naturally. And the depth and the, it just spoke to me. It was my, you know, excuse my French, it was my holy shit moment that changed the way I saw wine, what I thought it could be as a beverage, and has pushed me forward ever since. That is a heck of a wine to, you know, be able to focus on that uh, with those iconic people. And I've actually had two or three bottles of Mark, regretted it the next morning. But yeah, yeah pretty remarkable and, and uh, awesome. So... Did you go directly from Denver to UC Davis? And I should I mention that you are a graduate of UC Davis in the genealogy program there. Correct, yeah. Um, did you go just straight there, or did you have any stops on the way? Well, I went directly to Davis, but I initially got into Davis as a, uh, a material science engineer. Wow. Uh, so my other passion, other than wine, was mountain biking. And I, was, uh, I went to a private school. I have a learning disability, uh, two learning disabilities. So this school taught me how to overcome them. And one of the things the school did at the school is called Denver Academy was paired you with a mentor that has the same disability that was very successful. Um, and so they knew I was really into mountain biking, and so they paired me with a gentleman who founded a bike company called Moots Cycles, which is an amazing mountain bike company that makes their bikes out of titanium. And I found it fascinating why they chose that material over steel or aluminum or carbon fiber as the, their choice difficult to work with, but there's a lot of really great benefits to it. And after working with him and being mentored by him for two years, my um, uh, what is it, junior and senior year in high school, uh, I decided I wanted to make, uh, go at be an engineer creating a material that was even better than titanium. So UC Davis has one of the best material science programs in the world. Um, I went to school, I got in, and like day one, Received me even before day when it was summer advising when you go and you meet your professors and you register for your first classes I realized I wasn't smart enough <laughs> to, to succeed in that degree so I switched to winemaking and well maybe you were smart enough but you were maybe just a little more passionate about possibly the winemaking side but it was a uh, I'm still friends with the professors uh, that I met that uh, before uh, I started school and they they come to the winery and, and taste with me and Oh, so, that's cool. Um, you know, the wine professors and the engineering professors are still people I can go to with questions. And I actually have. I, you know, one of the things I've been able to do at the winery is design a state-of-the-art uh, wine cellar made of square uh, fermentation tanks that didn't exist before we designed them. And so in addition to um, working with Dr. Bolton at Davis, who was a wine professor of mine, I worked with uh, one of my material science professors to figure out the right engineering for the stainless steel we chose, as well as he connected me with a gentleman in Canada who was a, uh, kind of the foremost expert on stainless steel fabrication in the world. And um, with their help, plus a whole lot of other people's subs, we were successful in creating what is potentially one of the most data wineries in the world. 
Well, you are a big deal at Rodney Strong now, but you probably didn't just start there right out of college. No, I started as an intern at Iron Horse, working with okay. the great David Monksgar, yeah. uh, learning sparkling uh, production and, and Pinot and Chardonnay. And then I was still going to school then, and then immediately before, upon graduation, I started with Robert Mondavi. Um, stayed with Robert Mondavi until 2010, when I got recruited over to, to Rodney Strong, which is where I have been and hope to be for my whole career. So when you were at Rod, um, Mondavi, who, what, what office were you in? What field were you in? So I was the enologist at Robert Mondavi. Okay. Uh, so it was actually a really cool time at Mondavi because it was I started kind of right as the, the uh, acquisition of Robert Mondavi uh, into Constellation's portfolio happened. Oh. And so we were still fairly autonomous, but uh, over the time I was there, uh, that slowly changed. And one of the first things that Constellation did when they bought Robert Mondavi was they pulled the private selection production, which used to all happen in Napa, and they pulled it out. And that was like 4 million cases of production. So we had all this excess capacity that we weren't using. And so slowly, over, over the time I was there, they started incorporating other wineries' production uh, at our facility. So Simi and Franciscan and Estancia and uh, Blackstone and Claude Bois. Um, and so my job was to take all of these great winemakers, Steve Reeder and Eric Olson and Janet Myers, their protocols that they shared openly with me and produce their wine or with their grapes to their spec. And I got a taste with them and I got to learn from them in addition to learning from John Viev and learning from Michelle oh, yeah. and yeah. Gustavo. So I got this like master class of some of the best winemakers in Sonoma, or Sonoma Napa County uh, in a very short period of time. And it really launched my style in a very effective way. So it really, it helped me build a style from, you know, and learning. So like when I was working with Steve Reeder, who was the winemaker at CME at the time, you know, he made the first vintage of St. Supage when he was at Central um, St. Jean. So he knew Stone County better than anybody. And he would drive me around and we'd walk the best vineyards and we'd I'd learn the topography and learn the soils from him. Likewise in Napa Valley with some of the greats there. And so it really, I got a crash course in a very short period of time. And then as soon as I got to, to Rodney Strong, I got to work with the great David Ramey, which really rounded out a lot of my knowledge uh, after seeing some of the greats style and then seeing his style and just sort of continuing to wrap it up and I've never stopped learning and you know, we're still I'm still traveling yearly to the best growing regions and working with the best winemakers like Alejandro Bajil and um, Luis Reginato and Eddie Papo in Argentina and you know great winemakers like uh, Ellen at Latour in, in Bordeaux um, to keep honing the craft because you know we'll never stop learning and there's no school that could ever give you that no, kind of not knowledge. at all. Not at all. I mean, this is your, this is an amazing journey you've had in winemaking, working with some of the best of the best, and then um, being able to bring all that back. I assume bring all that back to Rodney Strong. Absolutely, and help develop our team and encourage them to learn in their ways too. You know, I I, use, I have this quote on a wall in my office, uh, and I use it as sort of a philosophy that we follow and it's from Leonardo da Vinci and it states that learning is the only thing the mind never exhausts, never fears and never regrets. 
And as long as we keep learning, even if we make mistakes, we'll continue to make progress in pushing our wine quality uh, and our sustainability uh, on forever. All right, well, you know, you just said two magic words here, winemaking team and sustainability. So let's let's tackle your winemaking team first. You, you're, now you're firmly in charge of winemaking at Rodney Storm. You have a winemaking team. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy and your shift in philosophy. Yeah, so at the end of the day, it really comes back to the vineyards because, you know, the very first thing I learned at UC Davis from Dr. Doug Adams was you can't make great wine without great grapes. So our philosophy always begins in the vineyard. And... One of the major, and it's a very simple change, but one of the major changes we've done is we've gone from this concept of growing our grapes from the standpoint of of looking at yield. So most people look at their yield from a tons per acre perspective. How many tons per acre does this vineyard grow? And that's sort of the rule of thumb. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as a pounds per volume perspective. I want to go down to the detail of every vine and how that vine's working. And we've done a lot of work with the help of a viticulturist that we work with named Daniel Roberts, who has done research and found the breaking point of how much grapes a single vine can grow over different varietals before it starts to degrade quality. And there is a clear breaking point in every varietal. It's different, but it exists. And so Pinot Noir is the most sensitive. It's like four pounds per vine. Cabernet is like six to seven pounds per vine. And so if you still want to maintain a high tons per acre, you just need more vines. And so our major philosophical shift, which has led to a multi-million dollar redevelopment that we're doing right now over 500 acres, is to shrink our spacings, get more vines per acre so we can have each vine work harder with less grapes than less vines working harder with more grapes. That foundation then comes into the winery, which is a uh, a philosophy of balance. And our team, which consists of Olivia Wright, who's my uh, winemaker rock star, who will blow the world up when everybody learns about her, and Greg Mortho, who is our, our uh, Burgundy expert uh, for Davis Bynum, are hyper-focused on taking that philosophy and then building upon it with their philosophies uh, behind uh, sustainability and balance ripeness levels, crop yield levels, to make each of our wines that we make unique to ourselves, but yet still follow these guardrails that I've set up. Well, you know, you talk about the vineyard redevelopment program, 500 acres had to be a very expensive undertaking, obviously, or I shouldn't say expensive, I should say a major investment. Correct. Because, you know, and no pun intended, it will yield results. Correct. Uh, I am just fascinated. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about pounds of fruit per vine before. This is a new uh, term of art for me. And how did you come about to this? Philo- I mean, was it just something that you learned? or? Yeah, I learned it, and then we, we, we trial and aired it. We practiced it. Okay. And we, so there we, was some experimentation that went on. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we started it, we were doing it with older vineyard uh, design. So those vineyards that we put less fruit on every vine ended up yielding you know, 1.5 tons per acre which wasn't obviously economically right, feasible. Right. And so, but what we did see is that the wine quality was clearly better in blind tastings and not just with, you know, winemaker palettes, but when we, we laid this out for our finance people and for, you know, we did small tastings in the tasting room where a consumer would come in and we'd put up a couple glasses, explain what we were doing and ask them to tell us what was their favorite. And it 
it was hands down a clear winner when you found that right balance by varietal to grow your grapes at. And so uh, a lot of it is understanding viticulture and what that site can handle. And site and variety are, site trumps everything, and varietal in that site is critically important. Okay, so just out of curiosity, if it's a, if it's a trade secret, don't answer yep, it. But now that you have done this redevelopment program, you have some vines that are closer together and yielding, again, it's still a low yield per, per vine. What are, you, what are you up to now in terms of tons per acre? So uh, our target's like four and a half tons per acre for, okay. for, for Cabernet. Okay. And we can achieve that with the quality that we're looking for by adapting this philosophy. If we wanted to maintain four, or five, four to five tons per acre on, say, a, a eight by six or a ten by six spacing, which would have been older philosophies, it would have, we would have seen a quality drop in order to maintain that financial viability of the property. Right. And I actually... We won't talk about the vineyard, maybe off camera, but <laughs> I do know somebody who's doing that now, and there has been a dramatic uh, decline, in, in my opinion, of the quality of that yeah, one. And you so can go bigger, right? Really I mean, you can go tighter. You can go meter by meter yeah. and get even more vines per acre. I mean, you can, I've seen vineyards planted four or 5,000 vines per acre. Our balance is 7 by 4, which is 1,556 vines per acre. And then as you go tighter, your farming costs change. And so my job is to manage the entire operation. And that means managing financial viability. And so I did a ton of research of no more than, no less than a dozen different spacing uh, setups and trellising setups and found that what we've chosen is just a beautiful balance of quality, yield, and, and costs, the cost of farming in. Um, when you go, say, to 6x4 from 7x4, you have to change equipment. It's too narrow. That change adds 40% to your cost. And so while you might get a little bit more grapes because you still get more vines, that extra amount of fruit is going to easily be absorbed and then, and then some with the change in farming expense. So you, through your research, you found the sweet spot. Correct. Right. And I'm not reinventing the wheel. I mean, I talked to the best in the world who have already done this work. We repeated it to confirm it, uh, but you know we didn't have to. We didn't have to figure all the details out. I believe in never reinventing a wheel, just making the wheel better. There you go. So you, t- you said another magic word prior: sustainability. And I should probably note that I just sat in on the sustainability panel here, of which you were a panelist, because I also believe that you serve on the Sonoma Wine Growers Association Board. Do I have that right? Uh, I'm working on it. You're working on it. I've applied. You have applied. (laughs) So when you were on the panel today, and you were very passionate about sustainability, what's going on in Rodney Strong with sustainability? You know, it's just a a mindset shift. You know, taking over for Rick, who was a staple um, and a little bit of a different thinking, we are embracing technology and getting approval from the family for the massive investment it takes to do that. Um, In the vineyards, it's everything from... Um, high-tech technology, incorporating algorithms and uh, lots of different sensors like Thule and continuous soil moisture sensors uh, to very simple things like when we lay out our vineyards, most standard vineyards would mark it where every vine goes with a plastic straw. We use a bamboo straw that are fully biodegradable and will just disappear into the vineyard. So we're removing all that plastic from our process. Uh, so simple things like that 
to very high-tech fixes and everything in between, uh, understanding ripping depth so we can use less water, looking for smaller vines, not bigger vines. That goes back to that spacing and pounds per vine concept. Uh, understanding how soils change and using drought-tolerant rootstock selections. Um, picking our trellising style so our canopies can be shaded more so we can irrigate less. Practicing regulated depths of irrigation so we're purposely putting less water back into the soils to push wine quality up. And you know, understanding aspect, uh, taking advantage of elevation, picking the right varietal to the right site, uh, utilizing soil pits and electric conductivity analysis. So we're mapping, literally mapping a three-dimensional picture of the subsoil, right? So we do three soil pits in every acre, and then we truth test all that research, all that data with a three 3D map, so we can see if there's a gravel spot or there's a clay spot and then adapt our block sizes accordingly with the right rootstock and the right irrigation controls and soil sensors in each of those subsections to get a balanced vineyard that only gets water in each spot when needed. How, how are you doing? I mean, are there... Are you, I have an app for that. You have an app. <laughs> yeah. Are there, uh, I guess, sensors that you're putting in the vines? Uh, yeah, so in the, the, in the soil, soil is called a continuous soil moisture sensor. Uh-huh. So that's measuring about every 15 seconds of soil moisture reading. That's then using, uh, there's a, uh, we work with a company called WiseCon uh, that all the data runs through this weather station and then transmits that back to us using telemetry. Um, in, the, in the canopy, there's two different sensors. One's called Thule, which is, uh, and, and the other's called Arable. Both measure a form of what's called evapotranspiration or ET. That's telling you how much moisture the vine is letting go via respiration. So the hotter it is, the more it's going to respire. The colder it is, the less. The windier it is, the less. If it gets too hot, it'll shut down and won't respire at all. So it's measuring all of this real time. And then it's taking all of that data, running it through an algorithm that's been created to achieve the deficit irrigation that we're looking for in an automated way, right? So this is automatic irrigation that we can... Uh, modified with our app to very, very meticulously push our quality up and not waste any water. And that's important because the old school method of thinking was irrigation sets. I'm going to put a six-hour irrigation set on this vineyard today. Those are measured by your drip emitter volumes. Typically, each vine can get one gallon of water per hour. So if you say, I want a six-hour set, it would get six gallons of water. That one vine. That one vine. Right. Right. So... Let's just say that you have a soil type that gets saturated in 15 minutes, which exists. Therefore, you don't need the rest of that time. The rest of that water that you would put on would be wasted. It would be a complete waste of water. Because once your soil moisture is saturated, it can't get more saturated. So the sensors would trigger and turn it off automatically. So you know Saving what's going that in water. and you know what's going out. You can actually dial exactly what right. you need. We never want to put in more than we lost. So what does this mean in terms of sustainability? And well, so we're still trying to get hard numbers on it, but it'll be a minimum of a 50% savings in water usage of irrigation, potentially much greater. Uh, the, the, the implementation is pretty new for us, and so we're still gathering our data. Um, but we're already seeing, uh, we can track our, our, our well, well usage, how much water we're pumping, and we can already see a dramatic uh, reduction in that. Oh, in addition, because this technology needs to 
have a, a ability to be very variable. We put in all new pumping infrastructure. So old old infrastructure was either based off diesel diesel pumps yeah. or propane pumps. All of ours are based off of now electric pumps that are uh, variable speed pumping technology, right. which used to be based off either diesel or propane, which was you know a big uh, greenhouse gas. Uh, producer uh-huh. to now utilizing electric uh, VFD pumps, which are much more efficient and will reduce our input uh, from that perspective. You know, again by fifty percent. What about in the winery? Any big changes? Uh, yeah, massive changes in the winery. So we have adopted Five S in the winery, which is an organizational philosophy to allow us to. Um, be much more efficient with how we do things. We've also, those square tanks that I was referring to, right. those tanks uh, just by themselves incorporate uh, a polish that's in the metal, uh, which is for all intents and purposes removing the pores, uh, which metal has just like human skin. And so instead of needing a lot of chemical, caustic chemical, and water and elbow grease to clean a tank, yep. uh, we now need no chemical. Uh, uses half of the water, 50% less water, and can be done in a third of the time. Wow. And so, so it's okay. better for our people, no exposure to chemical, it's better for our wines and environment, again, no chemical. And in that cellar alone, we have, we've, that's been in place since 2014, so we've, we've measured it. Uh, it's more than 6 million gallons of water of savings per vintage. You know, I love how you look at sustainability, not just at what's going on in the vineyard and not what's just going on in the winery, but you also mentioned your people. And I think that being just part of the community is so important in sustainability as well. I agree. I mean, I love my team. I consider them family. Uh, we, we lead our team with, a, you know, bottom line concept is family is always first. And, you know, Tom Klein, our owner, would absolutely agree with that. Uh, concept And so we try to pay our people very well so they have a living wage. We support our community's arts programs and schools to make sure that not only do they have a, a, a living wage, but they have a great place for their kids to grow up and for them to have culture. Um, and we uh, support any type of organization that we feel, especially literacy-based, can improve the future of our next generation, including one of the main beneficiaries of this event, which is the uh, Farm Worker Fund, which really helps, especially uh, in hard times like the 2020 fires when we lost a lot of crop. When you lose all that crop, those people are not in the fields picking, and therefore they're not getting paid. And so that Farm Worker Fund, which Tom and the family have been great supporters of since it was founded, uh, you know, is one of the reasons I choose to work for Rodney Strong and well, my family. They're lucky to have you. And uh, speaking of family... Uh, again, I was in the sustainability presentation. It was awesome. I'd like to wrap up this interview with something that you said at the end of the sustainability. You have young children, mm-hmm. and there's a particular book and a particular quote. Would you mind just leaving us with that? Yeah, so uh, I have three kids, 7, 10, and 11 years old, and one of our favorite um, books to read are Winnie the Pooh books. And he has a, a, a quote that I love, which is, the best way to get where you're going is to walk away from where you've been, from where you've been. And so we love that because we make progress very slowly, very methodically, by just walking forward away from where we were to improve and thinking always of the future and not of the past. Justin, I have to tell you, I am very excited about your future. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to meet you 
And thank you so much for spending this time with me on the podcast. Absolutely. Really great. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Do good, drink well. 